0: Hi, I'm Brandon Mercer.
1: And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, November 12th, 2015, and this is Episode 3 of Garbage.
0: All right, and on this week's episode, Joshua is going to talk about uh, some debugging techniques. And I've got some new hardware. I have the APU-2 that I'd like to talk about. And I would also like to talk about um, some improvements that Peter Hessler made to open BGPD.
1: So I've been working for like the last week on, uh, the XHCI driver in OpenBSD, which provides, uh, support for USB 3. And there's a weird problem where when the machine is booted cold, uh, USB devices work fine when you plug them in and, uh, pull them out. They, and then you can plug them back in and everything and it works fine. Mm-hmm. But after, uh, a warm reboot, um, the system will come up and then when you plug in a USB 3 device, it doesn't, uh get detected at all. And the weird thing is that I've been debugging this to the point where there's not even an interrupt generated when the device is plugged in. So I'm now like deep within the bowels of this driver trying to figure out why it's uh broken like that and why it only happens after a warm reboot and why on a cold uh boot it works fine. So I've been uh, looking into FreeBSD's uh, xHCI driver because uh, the OpenBSD one is uh, based on that, and it has the same problem, but it doesn't affect FreeBSD because of some. Uh, they have like a power saving mode, um, so it's basically shutting power down to ports that don't have anything plugged in. Okay. But then there's like a, a kernel thread that's scanning the the like hub where everything is connected like every, um, I don't know, few seconds or so. And then once it detects that something's plugged in, um, it powers up the port. So they're able to save power that way, which is nice. But um, in terms of this bug, they're kind of cheating because they're not actually detecting the... Um, they're not getting an interrupt when the device is plugged in. They're just noticing it because that process is scanning it every few seconds yeah so it's pretty weird and so now i've had to even d- dig into the linux driver which is uh ridiculously huge it's like written to every possible spec that is published on you know usb 3 and xhci and all this stuff um and it's written by and maintained by somebody that works at intel so it's a huge driver and i'm um just now kind of getting into the linux part of it trying to figure out what we're not doing right
0: now is the linux driver um is that something that basically intel did as a reference driver and said here this is open source and linux just pulled that all in and said this is the driver now rather than like cleaning it up and making it do the right thing
1: no i mean it's it's still under you know there uh, the person that maintains it um she's still committing on it and everything but uh you know if you just look at like the git history for the xhci files they go all the way back to like 2008 Or something like that. And you can see like the early commits that they were writing this kind of reference driver before USB 3 was even out. Hmm. So they like had all the code written for the controller, but the USB 3 spec hadn't been formalized yet. So all of that stuff came later. Hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of history to go through to see if there's anything that, you know, stands out as, oh yeah, maybe we're not doing this weird uh, initialization. Uh, register setting or whatever.
0: Yeah. How do you figure that out? So you said earlier that, um, an interrupt isn't even being fired, but how do you know that when you're trying to debug this?
1: In, uh, OpenBSD, it's basically going into the code, adding a printf statement, recompiling and rebooting. So doing anything in OpenBSD for hardware like this is, um, a real pain in the ass because, um, you basically have to do that for everything. You add a little piece of code to uh, to instrument it and see what it's doing, uh, recompile it, reboot, see what it's doing, and then make a change and repeat. Yep. Um, on Linux, it's easier with a lot of stuff because they use um, kernel modules for everything. So you can just unload the driver, uh, recompile that one driver, and then reinsert the module into the kernel yep. without having to reboot or anything. So as far as just debugging this kind of stuff on OpenBSD, it's been pretty hard, um, and very time consuming having to make like a small change and then reboot and test it. And especially now that I'm to the point where it only works for warm reboots versus cold reboots, I sometimes even have to like install the new kernel, power the entire machine down and then power it back up yeah. instead of just doing a reboot. But FreeBSD has a bit nicer of a uh, debugging system where they have all of the debugging like um, print F statements basically in the code and they're all compiled in there all the time and you can enable them uh, for each particular driver just by setting like a sysctl value. Mm-hmm. So you can set like sysctl debug equals one or something like that. And then it'll start spamming basically like the D message with all of the those printf statements, okay. Based on what you set the the number to, and Linux has this thing called uh, dynamic debugging, which is similar to that with uh, FreeBSD. So all of the debugging is compiled in all the time, but they have it down to the to the point where you can enable uh, debugging for a particular line of a particular file, <laughs> and you can do this with like their debug file system because they apparently have a de- or a file system for like every possible thing. But it's kind of over engineered. I mean, I don't know why you would need to enable debugging for one particular line of a file, mm-hmm. but trying to get, um, you know, useful information out of it is kind of difficult because you either have to do it per line or you just do it by the file. But then there's so much debugging in each file that it's kind of overflowing the message ring and everything. So it's kind of hard to get information out of it that you need, but, um, I don't know, I guess it's better than the way it's working in OpenBSD right now where we don't have any debugging at all and you have to uh, define something like in the kernel config and then recompile and reboot.
0: Yeah, and the other problem with doing it like that is um, if you don't have a printf in a in the code path that it's hitting, um, you don't know that you're hitting a different code path right so you're you're making an observation about where you have printfs and you think oh this is happening like this but it could be going through some other completely different code path without you knowing it just because you don't have a printf there
1: yeah a lot of times um with this thing that i've been working on there'll be like an if statement and then i'll have to add the else printf it didn't hit that mm-hmm. so like there's a bunch of those in the code that i'm uh trying to get through just to basically see what it's doing so, I know when you were doing like the ARM stuff for Chromebooks, you didn't write a lot of that code, so it was written by somebody else, so you had to kind of understand it yeah um what did you end up doing for that?
0: yeah, the same thing um writing printfs and watching behaviors and doing the same thing with like um finding the code path that that this thing was in, and then uh the same type of thing, and then um When we had panics, you have to, you know, start playing with the uh, memory addresses and find out where that was and then go back to the source code and say, oh, okay, it was in this path and then, you know, start to do printf statements around there and find out how it got in there and what it was expecting and what didn't it have and very similar type stuff. I didn't have anything, um, elaborate like, you know, JTAG debugging or anything like that, even though I have the hardware to do JTAG, I never made it that far. Uh, it was always code and printfs and observe the behavior and uh, make a change and see how that affects the outcome. And um, I actually spent most of my time in like um, in pmap stuff. So you know, page tables is like, oh, well, if that page is doing something that we don't expect, then just let it fall through. And that's probably not necessarily always the best thing to do, but Um, you know, that was kind of where it all led to at times.
1: Yeah, I mean, with this USB stuff, I'm sure somebody would be listening and say, well, why don't you just get like a USB sniffer and watch the actual traffic and see what the actual controller is doing? But that seems a bit overboard. So when you were doing the ARM stuff, were you in DDB a lot or was it basically just the printfs?
0: Um, a little bit in DDB and a little bit in, um, printf land. Um, a lot of times when things would start panicking, um, it took a, a bit of, like, examination, and I don't think at the time we had, like, symbols, so even when we did wind up there, or I did wind up there, you couldn't really do too much because everything was all messed up.
1: Oh. Uh-huh.
0: You know, and then I think um, it was not long after that somebody said, oh, well, we need symbols in there, and, Right. and then it starts to become useful, and you can actually do stuff, but um, at the time there were just, it just wasn't there and it wasn't useful. So you couldn't do that.
1: Yeah. It's hard to debug stuff when your debugging tools. Don't, uh,
0: <laughs>
1: when you have to write your debugging tools, basically. Yeah. I mean, even like in userland, I don't use GDB that much and like step through code. Um, I mean, I will, if like there's a weird crash and I can't figure it out, but for the most part, uh, I'm basically a printf debugger even in userland.
0: Yeah, actually, um, You mentioning that I remember I wrote a bunch of Java code just using, uh, Vim and I would compile it at the command line. And then when I got NetBeans, um, I went from kind of doing the printf thing in Java, you know, you'd write the code and you'd see where it was going. But in NetBeans, you know, you can step through and set breakpoints. And it's a completely different type of debugging when you can watch the code execute um sometimes you know we look at a loop and we say oh this is what's happening but there's a subtle bug in the loop and you don't realize that you're going through the loop 15 times instead of 5 right and um and i think that was kind of a neat experience for me to see um you know watching the the application execute and then um nowadays uh, i'm using go and so there's not like an IDE with Go. You don't um, fire up your IDE and then, you know, step through the code. But you do have like the profiling thing and you can kind of see like um, you, you profile your application and you kind of can kind of see where it's spending its time and you go backwards from there. It's like it, it's a, a mix of the two, I think, a little bit in some ways.
1: Yeah, I guess now that you say that, um, when I have to do Android and, uh, iOS development for Pushover, um, uh, because they have full featured IDs, IDEs and stuff, it is a lot easier to, to step through the code and, um, set breakpoints and stuff. But yeah. I guess just doing it in GDB on the command line, um, never appealed to me. It seemed always faster to just do, uh, the printf style debugging. Yeah. So that's pretty much all I had on, uh, debugging. I'm still working through this code trying to figure out it's got to be something really subtle because on a cold boot the machine works fine usb devices usb3 devices work fine um you can plug them in you can take them out Uh, everything works and then it's just on a warm reboot um sometimes like the first time you put it in and then take it out it detects that and then when you put the when you plug it back in then it stops working Mm -hmm. and it's like that's Really weird. And it's only USB 3 devices. USB 2 devices on the same controller work fine.
0: Um, I wonder if it has something to do with, like, we initialize the hardware, you know, on the first boot, um, and then when you power it off, those registers go back to some default state. And um, maybe we're not quite resetting stuff enough. I don't know if that would even make sense. But, you know, when it's in a yeah. partially initialized state, we don't um, uh, uninitialize it or whatever, go back to, to ground zero enough for it to um, come back up correctly. right? And so it stops sending interrupts because it thinks it's in a different mode or different state.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's got to be some, you know, little register or something because basically when it the driver comes up, One of the first things it does is completely reset itself. Hmm. So, uh, it hopefully will not be in that kind of a state. And I've tried like, um, putting it in that state. So it's cold booted into OpenBSD. It works and then warm rebooting into Linux. Yeah. Hoping that it, you know, might print something like, Oh, I tried to look for this flag or this setting and it wasn't there. So I'm doing something different. Um, but nothing really jumps out.
0: It's strange that you're talking about that with USB. Um, One of the things that I've been running into on the Chromebook, um, I have to boot off the USB drive, and most of the time the USB will attach and work just fine, but every once in a while it'll go into some, I don't know what's wrong with it exactly, but it'll panic. Uh, The kernel will panic while it's trying to attach USB and... I don't even get as far as like storage or anything. It's not you know, it's not um trying to attach the drive and then that fails. But anyway, it's the same type of thing, and then I'll I'll um do a restart, like you're saying, like a warm restart and it doesn't do much, and then I have to power off the machine and then things kinda come back up. But um I would think even in that case that U Boot has to um initialize the the USB again. And in fact, um, one of the things that I do in, uh, in U-Boot is I say um, restart the USB, whatever, subtree, device tree, manager, whatever. I don't know what U-Boot has in there. But you tell it to restart USB, and then it does that, and then you load stuff off of the USB drive. So you'd think that the hardware would be clear back to ground zero, but it it's... Um, it's not uh, 100% reproducible, so it's similar along those lines, but yours sounds to have more of a pattern than mine.
1: Yeah, it's pretty weird. Um, I mean, for a long time, OpenBSD has had this issue where, I don't know if, if you remember seeing it, but you'll after you've been using the system for a while, you plug in a device and it says, like, detected a problem with port, uh, disabling port, and then you basically can't use that USB port until you reboot the machine. Hmm. We've had this issue forever, and I've, found the code in there where it's doing it and looked how they did it in linux and of course in the linux driver they have all kinds of like uh ways to save it and i guess it, like there's a comment in there that it's due to some sort of electrical uh interference that that's what causes that problem so it's like expecting it so it can properly reset it without having to completely disable the port so hopefully i'll uh, integrate that too so we won't have that issue anymore so I'm doing this on this new um, Samsung laptop that I have, and it's using EFI for uh, for booting. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to boot OpenBSD, FreeBSD, and Linux, all with a like graphical EFI boot menu thing. Okay, and it's so much nicer than the old um, MBR stuff where you'd basically like have to use um, Grub or something and have that chain load the uh, the other operating system. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, so now that these machines use EFI, they have no BIOS, basically. So, like, when you turn on the machine, or in this laptop, you hit F2 to go into the menu. There's literally, like, three settings in the entire thing. Hmm. So, to change, like, what what it boots to, either the CD-ROM or, like, the on-disk EFI bootloader, it's, all of those variables are stored in NVRAM. So, they have to, you can't edit them from the BIOS. You can't, you can only select like which order you want them in. So, you can't add a new entry into there. The operating system has to do that. So, you have to be able to boot to the operating system first so that it can install or it can like change its NVRAM, the NVRAM settings on the machine so that it can boot itself, Hmm. which is, um, Fine, I guess uh, we don't have that yet in OpenBSD, so we just install like you can install the um, basically like the EFI program, and you copy that to the EFI partition on the hard drive, um, and then the BIOS basically boots that. But in Linux, it has like support for those e- setting those EFI variables to add a new entry. So like when you go into the BIOS on the machine, you can see that um, it's trying to boot Linux first and not just like hard disk. Uh, one or something like that. Yeah. So anyway, so I was trying to, um, get FreeBSD installed onto a small partition on the disk to do some debugging and it wiped out all of those, uh, EFI variables. So when you'd go into the BIOS, there was no possible boot options Ooh. and there's no way to add new ones. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, great. So is this machine like bricked now? I can't do anything. Yeah. So luckily, um, if you have a USB, Uh, CD-ROM drive plugged in, uh, which I do with my um, ISO stick. Have you ever seen these? Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. It's basically like a USB key. It has a removable micro SD card on it. Um, So you plug it in and it shows up like as a regular USB drive with um, like a FAT32 file system on it. And then you can basically just put ISO images on the um, SD card And then you edit a config file and you say which one you want it to boot. And then when you unplug it and then plug it back in, it shows up as a regular CD ROM drive with that ISO uh, mounted. So um, you can basically use them to like install operating systems or do whatever you want because the operating system doesn't see any difference between uh, the ISO stick and like a real CD ROM drive.
0: Oh, that sounds useful, especially for that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So like on my ISO stick, I have like. Probably 20 ISOs. I mean, everything from like weird FreeBSD versions and NetBSD and Dragonfly and uh, Windows and Linux and all this stuff. So it's really useful for testing. I'll link to it in the show notes. But anyway, so once that's plugged in, the uh, EFI will basically uh, let you boot to the CD ROM drive. So I can, I was able to at least do that, boot to Linux and then tell Linux to edit those EFI variables and make a new boot entry, so it would boot off the hard drive.
0: Yeah, it sounds, it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, like, the um Solaris LDOM, where OpenBSD, you know, you can boot into that, and you can uh, set up your LDOMs and stuff uh, from within OpenBSD, or you could do it from within Solaris. Um, but you couldn't set them up and configure them from the console, I don't think, could you?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, all this stuff, it kind of works like uh, Bless on uh, Mac OS where there's no BIOS to do anything, but you basically have to boot and then run the Bless command and say you want to boot to a CD or a different partition or something like that, and it's all kind of stored in some magic location that you can't easily get to. Yeah. And I mean, for the majority of people using this laptop, they're never going to go into the BIOS at all, let alone go in there and like change any of these settings. So I guess the manufacturers don't really care about making a BIOS where you can actually edit and create your own boot settings. So we're all doomed, people.
0: Yeah, I, I'm worried because, uh, you know, is that supposed to be helpful that you can't change that?
1: I think it's just basically they figure nobody's going to do it, and when you install Windows, it uh, sets that stuff up itself. So it's like, why bother paying their uh, engineers to actually create that? Uh, interface
0: yeah well cool so that's uh debugging and playing with uh, fun new hardware how How do you like that laptop you've had it for like a few weeks now right
1: yeah it's uh i don't really use my macbook much anymore which is pretty cool because uh usually i'll get some open bsd laptop and then i'll configure everything and then be like yeah this keyboard sucks or yeah. i hate the display and i'll go back to the macbook but um i love this thing the keyboard is is so much better than the the macbook's the tactile is a lot better, and the, the trackpad, I still haven't written the trackpad driver for it, but just like when I accidentally click on it, it's a very solid click. It feels very nice.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I have um, a new piece of hardware here. Um, I sent an email and uh, got a, got my hands on the APU2, which is a small little piece of hardware. that It's very commonly used for firewalls. Um, It's got a few Ethernet ports on it, and mSATA, and some PCI Express slots in it. And I had been eyeing up the the new APUs for a while now, and uh, I eyed them up long enough that now they have an APU 2. And I got my hands on it, and it's a really, really nice piece of hardware. It's um, a little quad-core CPU, and it's got three gigabit Ethernet ports, Um and I think they show up as EM. So they're actually like good Ethernet <laughs> chips rather than like the, the Realtek or whatever they had on the other one.
1: Yeah, I have the uh, original APU as my firewall downstairs, and um it has three uh, Realtek 8168 devices. They show up as RE.
0: Yeah, and from what I understand, that device is quite capable and works really well. Um, I kind of like looked at this board and I'm looking at the the hardware that's used on it and I'm looking at the board layout and the design of it and I'm looking at the quality of how it was put together and this thing is really well thought out and I think it's thought out from the perspective of if you're going to use this as a firewall or you're going to use this as a wireless access point and do it well, here's the things you need. Mm -hmm. and they just, I mean, the hardware itself is good quality, the feature set is very good, and they improved on the APU design that they had uh, significantly, and the APU2 also has, like, ECC memory. Um, There's been some, like, weird attacks that have been talked about, and I can't recall if it's you write um to the memory next to a region and make it flip a bit or if you read or something like that and you can gain access to another you know region of memory
1: the row hammer attack
0: yep that's right and so ECC is supposed to make that attack much harder to do but anyway this little small um firewall device has ECC memory and it's built really robust and uh i don't know if people have ever opened up like a Cisco and seeing how that looks versus, you know, some Chinese piece of junk. Um, this is really looking like a very quality piece of hardware from my limited electrical engineering expertise. And so um, I haven't had it long enough to get OpenBSD running on it, but it runs um, CoreBoot, and you can get the source code to the BIOS. And um,
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I was looking at the d-message of my, uh, my original APU and saw that it's running CoreBoot. It shows up as uh, on the BIOS zero line vendor core boot. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool.
0: I think that's a, a pretty neat feature to have in this day and age. I don't know what I would ever do with it, or if it really has as much value as I perceive it to have. But I think that it's good that we can get our hands on the source code to the BIOS, and we can kind of trust the hardware. I would consider this a little bit more trustworthy hardware platform. Than some of the other stuff that you can get, and um, yeah, I think they I think they have a good thing as far as this um, you know firewall platform. And in fact, I'm going to um, performance test it and see how it holds up to the rigors of some you know network traffic for voice over IP and that kind of stuff, and just get a feel for it because I uh, I'm actually really excited about it. It looks quite useful.
1: You were talking about the, uh, the BIOS. I remember on the old, like, Socrus, uh, machines that a lot of people used for OpenBSD firewalls. Mm -hmm. Uh, we kept running into, like, BIOS problems. Um, and I remember we'd have to do, like, workarounds and stuff in the kernel because they had such a crappy BIOS. So now that they have, uh, Coreboot on these, um, APU machines made by, uh, was it PC Engines?
0: Yep, PC Engines.
1: Yeah. Is Socrus even like around doing stuff anymore?
0: Socris is doing stuff and I and I had Socrus back in the day and I remember the same thing it was kind of painful. Oh you need to upgrade your BIOS because there's a bug. Right. Uh, um and I think the difference now is like the PC engines folks, there were some issues early on with the APUs and ALEX stuff, but they got it sorted out and now they're getting the hardware into the hands of people who can iron out the bugs before they make their public release, which I think is good. Is that you? Uh, and a number of other people, too, actually. So I'm not exclusive to this. They've been uh, very, very good about getting hardware into people's hands so they can test it and run it in their configurations and help them um, you know, test it out on various different operating systems and platforms. And they're trying to be proactive, which I think is awesome. I, I just have nothing bad to say about this experience.
1: So does it boot off of a uh, SD card like the old one?
0: I haven't looked what's supported. I know that right now there's some limitations. There's some bugs in core boot preventing, um, like, I think it's mSATA from booting. Um, hmm. I know that USB boots right now, and I'm not sure about the SD card. So um, I have to get my USB to serial cable out of the basement, and uh, and then I'll know a little bit more about that.
1: So those are not for general sale yet? they're waiting for you to fix bugs?
0: Well, I hope you're not waiting on me, but I, I do plan on, <laughs> uh, you know, firing it up and seeing what I can do to to help get it running. And I know that um the BIOS, like the core boot stuff is available for people to download or not available for people to download. You can get your hands on it if you email them. So yeah, there's actually already been some, some diffs in OpenBSD. Uh, Stuart Henderson, he, listed a couple device IDs, and I think it was a power-saving mode or maybe it was some um, some sensors that were enabled. So yeah, improvements uh, happening already, so it's good. And I think we've seen a couple D-messages come through the lists, and people are trying stuff, so it's good. One of the things that's um, happened this past week is uh, Peter Hessler worked on OpenBGPD, And uh, he did a little write-up on bad.network about it. One of the things that was a problem is they were having performance issues loading all these filters. And Peter dug in and he started to look at it and um, basically found a whole bunch of things that were being evaluated that didn't need to be evaluated. And he started eliminating that stuff and going through and analyzing how this process worked and just uh, made it more performant all the way around. And he did a a really nice write-up if you want to read all the the details about it. But the really cool thing is he, he got a, a large amount of um, prefixes. I think something like 600,000 prefixes or something like that. And it used to take like 35 minutes on his laptop to, to load all those filters. And uh, after he made all those improvements, it knocked it down to 30 seconds.
1: That's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, it's a huge improvement. Um, so if you're using OpenBGPD or you were avoiding using OpenBGPD uh, because of performance, I think now's a good time to uh, give it a look. I think there's been uh, significant improvements in that area. And wasn't it also pledged recently?
1: Uh, I am not sure.
0: I know that there's been a lot of things that have been pledged and improved on in that way, and there's... it's kind of the one of the cool side effects of pledging stuff is um, we're finding software that just has um, a bad design pattern uh, where it's kind of doing things in a way that you know don't really adhere to a sound methodology I suppose is the way you want to phrase that but um, we've pledged hundreds of applications I think now and and there's been a few that you know say, ah, oh, well, this application doesn't really do the right thing, and you can kind of see um, how there's weaknesses to a bad application's design and what it takes to bring that back into um, a design that can be pledged and made more secure.
1: And I think even in the instances where uh, the design isn't that bad but it needs to be changed in order to pledge it, uh you get all of that initialization code um or the, the scary code I guess you bring it all to the beginning of the program mm-hmm. uh so that you can get all that out of the way first and then pledge after that and let it drop all of those permissions that it needs. Yeah. So even just a, a small redesign can help kind of bring all that scary code up to the top so you're aware of it when you're looking at it.
0: Yeah. And and you find some applications and you say, why does this application have the ability to create sockets? That shouldn't, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, people look at the permissions in Android and I'm, I'm drawing a very big, uh, likeness or, um, trying to bridge a very big gap here with this. But, um, you know, they look at the permissions of Android and they say, why does this thing have access to my pictures and my contacts and all these other things? And it's kind of the same thing in operating system land. You know, you're like, why is this, particular application that's playing sound, able to connect and create sockets and do all these little things. And um, it's a good exercise to go through. I'm really happy that we're going through that.
1: Uh, Related to that uh, Android topic, there is a hardened version of Android called Copperhead. Have you heard of this?
0: I've not heard of it.
1: Okay. So it's basically, um, it's like a startup and one of the projects that they're doing is hardening um, Android and, uh, kind of releasing ROMs for the Nexus devices. Huh. So they're forking, um, Cyanogen mod and doing all of this work. But they're basically putting in a lot of the, um, like Linux kernel hardening and a lot of, um, some OpenBSD stuff, uh, into Android itself. And then they're going to be releasing, um, ROMs that you can just flash to your phone. But in the process of doing this, they're kind of doing the same thing. They're kind of going through a lot of this code that people haven't really looked at too much and uh, kind of raising some questions like, why is this this way? So um, I followed them on Twitter, and that one of the, they were talking today, uh, pointing out some change sets that they've uh, filed or whatever with the Cyanogen project for their root, how you do root on uh, Android, Yeah. where you basically like when an application calls uh, sue, it brings up, like, a GUI application that, that handles that and then prompts you if you want to allow that application to to get root. Mm-hmm. So they were looking through that code, and they found, like, three vulnerabilities in that code that's supposed to handle Sue itself. And it's like, okay, so this thing that's supposed to carefully give out root permissions has these three vulnerabilities in it that anybody could use to just get root themselves. So anyway, they're um kind of going through all that stuff and hardening Android, so hopefully a lot of this stuff will get merged back into Android proper. But uh before or until it does, you can run their um their ROM once it comes out.
0: Yeah, that that actually sounds like a really good thing. One of the things that I've I mean cell phones in and of themselves are like a scary thing to use and have and operate when you think about security. Um there was just uh recently somebody talked about some base baseband hacking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I forget the details of it, but basically they were down in some, um, sheltered room underground where there was no other, um, cell phones or anything. And they basically, uh, cracked the baseband of this brand new cell phone that just came out of the box. I don't want to give anybody a bad name. I think it was like a Samsung S six or something like that. And they cracked the baseband and, uh, they were able to like, uh, send calls along to their phones. And it's basically like what you see in person of interest when they're like, here, get their phone. And then, you know, they're able to route all the calls back to their main center or whatever and listen. And the same thing happened.
1: That's a feature that's just called call forwarding.
0: Call forwarding. Yeah. (laughs) So it was kind of interesting to see. And I think they were going to present at a conference. And it's probably something that a big... Company doesn't want to have really published all over the place, so they'll probably wind up dead or asked not to speak about it or something like that. Right? It's one of those things where cell phones are scary enough as it is, and then we put this software on them that is even worse. Um, and I just don't—I don't know that I trust the model either. We give a development toolkit to a bunch of developers on the internet that they can build the softwares for these soft phones. And I don't think that the, the SDKs can, um, secure th- these whatever applications that these hundreds of millions of developers are submitting. And then so you have all this stuff on your phone that you just have no idea what it's capable of or what it is doing or how horrible the bugs in it are. And it's kind of a scary proposition.
1: And then even when the bugs do get fixed, uh, you might not get an update, which is just insane. Yep. What is it? Windows XP stopped being supported. Mm -hmm. And once somebody releases like a really big, uh, scary bug or uh, exploit for that anytime in the future, it's going to be pretty weird because that's like the first time that uh, all these Windows users will be exposed without any ability to do anything about it because Microsoft stopped supporting it. And yet we, you know, that happens every day on Android where all these bugs are found and they're fixed already, but these users have no ability to get those fixes.
0: Mm-hmm. I almost think it's worse on the mobile market, on the mobile side, because I think there's probably more mobile devices with more vulnerabilities. At least in my head, there are than mm-hmm. there are, you know, XP machines that are in critical situations like that or used so in in such a hostile environment. You know, I mean, a phone is sitting right out in the middle of nowhere, completely exposed to everything. Mm-hmm. At least with XP machines, you are hopefully behind firewalls and you know maybe you're running some sort of malware protection and hopefully they aren't sitting on a cellularly exposed network where anybody can get to them and do very horrible things to them. So it's almost worse in my mind in the Android situation than it would be in the XP situation because you're not getting updates uh, from your carrier or from the hardware manufacturer or from whomever and you're in a much, much more hostile environment, you know?
1: Yeah. I do wonder if Google is ever going to start kind of reining in Android. I mean, they already have as far as the entire operating system isn't really open anymore. If you want to run any Google services or Google apps, all that stuff is deployed uh, in binary-only form through the the Play Store. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if they're going to eventually start reining in the operating system and saying that vendors can't, keep making changes to it and it's going to have to run, you know, a a stock version of Android that Google maintains and is able to kind of push out. Cause I don't really see this getting any better. Um, you have all these PCs that run custom hardware drivers because they're all different pieces of equipment, but they all run the same version of windows. So Microsoft is able to update windows whenever they want Mm -hmm. and push it to every user. But on Android, you can't do that because, um, all of these, I mean, you can't upgrade an Android phone and upgrade its kernel without knowing if the uh, the hardware driver for like the touchscreen or something is going to break. So I'm not really sure what's going to be done about that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really hard problem to solve for sure.
1: So I do have some follow up to a previous episode. I was, uh, I guess this is just for myself, but I was asking about Pledge uh, in OpenBSD and the status in PS. So, you can see which processes are running that have been pledged. Uh, that mm-hmm. is in there now. So, when you do like a PS, um, A, I guess, uh, in the default, uh, stat column, you will see, uh, if there is a P flag in there, that means that the process is running and has been pledged. So, you can do like Very a. Very cool. Yeah. Um, psax to show all of the processes, and you can see how many of them are pledged and how many aren't. So that's kind of cool. Yeah.
0: And now you can be think, uh,
1: extra weary of all those non-pledged processes.
0: I think it's great that we have that. I'm I'm wondering too. You know, everybody says OpenBSD doesn't do anything for security, and it's like people keep spouting out all this nonsense. But there have been so many vulnerabilities that have affected software that we run that have been mitigated by other um, security countermeasures that we have in place. And I've seen it on, you know, some forums and stuff. People are like, oh, they're vulnerable. I looked at their code. They're running the same thing we are. They're vulnerable. But if you actually try and run the exploit against OpenBSD, it doesn't do the same behavior or it doesn't, you know, actually um, achieve the exploit. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's other mechanisms in place on OpenBSD that, um, that mitigate it. And, you know, Nginx vulnerabilities, I shouldn't even be naming out things, but there's been things that, you know, affect Windows much more heavily than they do Unix environments. And there's been, you know, 12 things that affect Windows and 6 things that affects the Unix operating systems and maybe two or three of those actually were an exploit on OpenBSD because um, of the countermeasures that we have in place. And I think that's why it's really important to keep doing things like this to software um, and and keep working at keeping your operating system um, proactively secure. I think it, there's a huge value in doing that. And I think that's kind of what led us to forking OpenSSL is that the countermeasures that were in place for um, some of these exploits were being turned off in OpenSSL. And when you turn them back on, the the source tree wouldn't even compile. And that's when we said, well, okay, we have to take this back and we have to get this working because these are significant. These weren't even just, all of them weren't even OpenBSD-specific things. They were just compiler things that, you know, you just have to do. And um, so basically some of the most fundamental um, mitigation techniques that were in place even in compilers were turned off and mitigated in OpenSSL, and uh, we just had to undo that.
1: And uh, going back to that uh, Copperhead um, Android distribution, they are running OpenBSD's malloc. Mm -hmm. So they have all of the flags that we have available as far as... um, protections in there to see when there's like use after freeze and stuff like that. And so they um, have found bugs in uh, Android apps that crash with uh, OpenBSD's malloc because of bugs in that application. So they've been able to use that and um, report some uh, security vulnerabilities due to that. Um, One of them was in um, some weird Qualcomm I don't even know what it was. Some like something to do with the baseband or something like that, mm-hmm. and that was crashing with uh, this with these features turned on, which is kind of scary. I uh,
0: I am very leery of Qualcomm, and I'm very <laughs> leery of those types of radios. I, I just it's just the whole thing scares me. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you, like you were saying, it's uh, scarier when it's a mobile phone. When you have a Windows XP computer, it's maybe connected to a Wi-Fi network, or even if it's directly connected to the internet, you have you know IP traffic that you can that's coming in that you can filter. Mm-hmm. With a phone, it's connected to a radio uh, network that you have no ability to look into, and that radio hardware itself is doing all kinds of weird stuff that you can't even see.
0: Yeah, and not to mention we know that you know m- municipalities have impersonated radio towers, and if they can do it. So can somebody else, and um, it, I think it's even easier in that case than it is you know for wireless or a wired network for somebody to jump in between and you know inject packets or impersonate um, you know a, a, a cell tower. You can't do that on a wired network as easily, but very, very many uh, scary things I think in that arena.
1: It's a scary world out there, folks. So I guess that's all we had for uh, topics. We did have a Twitter user, Mike Putnam, that uh, reached out to us and was asking about our uh, setup and how we make this show.
0: Yeah, and uh, I use a very high-quality um, clam chowder can. with It's basically kind of like a twine in the base of it, and uh, that goes to Chicago, where JCS has a very nice studio with a <laughs> very nice microphone.
1: Yes. So the uh, the actual setup that I'm using is a uh, Samson C01U Pro USB microphone. Uh, it's connected to a shock mount dealy, mm-hmm. and that is connected to a Rode PSA1 arm that's on my desk, and I am listening to the to the sound of my weird voice through Sennheiser Momentum headphones, and We do this show, I guess it's called Double Ended? Yes. Where basically I am recording myself, and I am talking to Brandon over Skype, but he is recording himself locally. And then he sends me the uh, recording when we're done through Dropbox, and then I merge the two audio files together and sync them up. And then uh do some light editing to remove ums and ahs and weird, awkward silences and stuff. And then uh I do that in the uh Audacity program on my Mac. And then it's uh converted into an MP3 and then uploaded to the garbage.fm website through the uh CMS uh application that I wrote uh a couple weekends ago, which was written in my um half moon PHP uh, MVC framework that gave, uh, Brandon and I just a little administration panel where we can edit and upload episodes and see statistics and all that neat stuff.
0: Yep. Write some notes in there.
1: Yeah. We can, uh, share notes with each other and, uh, know what we're about to talk about for each show. And then the, uh, it gets pushed out to the garbage.fm website where, uh, Everything is cached as flat files, so it's like PHP, but then it just dumps itself to a flat file, and then nginx just serves up flat HTML files since they don't change that often. Yep. So it's uh, entirely over-engineered to scale to massive heights for our show that gets uh, I don't know, <laughs> a couple hundred downloads yep. each show.
0: Yep. Uh, and it's and if you guys hear the difference between my recording and what uh what Joshua has i'm using an android phone the the nexus 6p and i just have that sitting next to me and it's recording and you hear all the extra stuff that it picks up you probably hear my cat's purring in the background and um you know me moving around the computer and that kind of stuff whereas his microphone is really really good at isolating sound so if you if you think, man, $60 for a microphone, is that worth it? Now, you know, you can hear it. <laughs> and this is after he filters, um, you know, a bunch of the noise off of my, my recording as well.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the funny part is that the arm that I'm using, the boom arm costs more than the microphone. <laughs> Cause I, uh, I bought like a $15 arm on Amazon that like said, it was recommended with this microphone and it was just garbage. It kept like breaking and it was weird so i stepped up to a a good arm and i'm happy with it nice so that's pretty much it for our uh setup and i guess our show right
0: yeah i think that's it for this week we uh want to thank you guys for listening if you have any comments on the show or have anything that you would like us to talk about let us know and we'll see if we can get to it
1: you can uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Garbage FM. Uh, so you can subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm and find us on iTunes or your podcast app or whatever you're using to listen to us right now. And, Brandon, uh, where can people find you?
0: I'm on Twitter at No Mercy Mod, and that's K N O W.
1: And I'm on Twitter at JCS and on the interwebs at JCS.org.
0: Thanks, guys. Appreciate you listening.
1: And, uh, and girls.
0: Yes, we appreciate everyone listening.
1: Yes, including uh, cats
0: and dogs.